Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. Welcome. So as the protests continue, so do the conversations about race and white supremacy and policing and criminal justice reform. I'm seeing a lot of literature recommendations, and even Netflix has a list of informative shows. You even uh, checked a couple out yourself, right, Steve? Yeah, actually, Netflix has an entire Black Lives Matter collection that's uh, readily available, including uh, Ava DuVernay's The 13th, which uh, you highly recommend, right, John? I do, yeah. It, well, I mean, you know, interestingly, I've never really seen it myself because, it's, well, you know, we're limited in here, but uh, it's what we see. You kind of get what you get. I'll probably do another episode about, like, what we, the channels we get in here, but, uh, you know, I've read reviews on Ava DuVernay, and she's great. Um, and we've talked to a couple of, of the guests. We've had them on our show, right? One of the guests that was on 13th is going to be on our show today. That's Mark Maurer. But let's just to, since we're talking about recommendations, though, when it comes to uh, criminal justice reform, most don't most know about like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, right? And Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, James Foreman's Locking Up Our Own, John Faff's Locked In, Emily Bazelin's uh, Charged. These are like you know top sort of mass incarceration criminal justice reform books to read. But another book I read last year, and it's a quick read with personal portraits woven through, is The Meaning of Life, The Case for Abolishing Life Sentences. And the following is my conversation with one of the authors and the leading expert on sentencing in America, Mark Maurer. I recorded this a few months ago, so here we go. Check it out. Mark Maurer is the nation's leading expert on sentencing policy, race, and criminal justice. He's been at this for over 40 years and warned us about this mass incarceration thing with his book in the late 90s, Race to Incarcerate. In 2005, he became the executive director of the Sentencing Project. He's won a slew of awards, has testified before Congress, both states and federal, and regularly appears on NPR and is often quoted by major media outlets. His latest book, co-authored by Ashley Nellis and Carrie Myers, is titled The Meaning of Life. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So The Meaning of Life, it sounds existential, like, say, uh, Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. But it's not that at all. Right. I can't really tell you what the meaning of life is. We each have to discover that for ourselves. But what we can talk about is life imprisonment and how life imprisonment has become to be a defining feature of the American prison system with, uh, as my 
co-author Ashley Nelson, I believe, uh, profound consequences for mass incarceration, how it develops and what needs to happen if we're ever to challenge mass incarceration. And one of the uh, sort of uh, stark stats is that one of uh, seven serving life terms, about 200,000, uh, are serving life, different different sort of life sentences. Uh, can can you break that down for the listener? Like, yeah, what is well, the, the life? Fi- the I can break it down in three dramatic. categories. Sure. You know, we've done a survey of all 50 states in the federal system, and we are able to document how many people are serving life with the possibility of parole, life without the possibility of parole, and what we call the virtual lifers, a sentence of 50 years or longer. And the findings are quite shocking and dramatic, I think, though that one of every seven people in American prison today is serving a life sentence. That's 206,000 people. Uh, To put some perspective on that, there are now more people serving life than the entire prison population back in 1970, just prior to the explosion in the prison population during that time. Um, Internationally, as is true of our system of incarceration, use of the death penalty, the United States is a complete outlier. Um, We, uh, the world population of people serving life, the estimates are about 40% or so of the lifers are here in the United States. And so we have this explosion in this population. Uh, Much of this is an outgrowth of a so-called tough-on-crime movement, uh, and which we think is problematic for mass incarceration and even counterproductive for public safety purposes. So that's the problem, and uh, the sort of solution that you offer, the premise of the whole book is this question of, you know, how much you know, how much time is enough uh, to send somebody to prison? Full disclosure, you're talking to somebody that's got 19 years in on a 28 years to life uh, sentence in New York State for murder and selling drugs. And uh, so your sort of solution, you know, suggested as uh, a panacea, but, you, but you, you suggest that we should do 20-year caps in the United States of America, sort of mimicking uh, European nations. Yes? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the vast majority of people serving life are there for a serious violent crime, murder, armed robbery, among the most common ones we see. Um, so clearly these are serious crimes. Um, it's also the case, and we've known this for a 100 years, that um, the one thing we know about involvement in crime is that people age out of the high crime years. Um, <clears throat> what we see is that in the mid-teen years, 15, 16 or so, young boys particularly, but young girls as well, uh, have a much higher risk of involvement in crime. And this risk rises until the late teens, early 20s, but then it comes down quite dramatically after that. So by the time someone's in their late 20s, 30s, certainly 40s, 50s or so, their risk to public safety is dramatically reduced from what it was for that teenage person. Um, And, you know, this is a 
we can demonstrate this in criminology, but anyone uh, who's been a parent has had a teenager know this. You know, teenage boys, teenage girls do crazy things, and most of the crazy things they do don't lend them up in prison, uh, but some do, and most people grow out of that period because they grow up. They become adults. They get jobs. They get families. They have careers. And they find that being adult is more satisfying than hanging out with their friends on the street corner. So, so people age out of crime, meaning that we send a 25-year-old to prison, let's say, for armed robbery. By the time that person is 35 or 40, in most cases, not every last one, but in most cases, the public safety risk is dramatically reduced. So that keeping that person in for another 10, 20, 30 years produces diminishing returns for public safety. The longer we keep them in, the less crime we're preventing, and it also comes at a higher cost because as people age in prison, uh, the cost of medical care in particularly starts to skyrocket after around age 50 or so. So we're preventing less and less crime. It's coming at a much greater cost um, because of this explosion of sentences that are measured in decades uh, in contrast to what it would look like in other countries. Yeah, I mean, I could certainly identify with uh, sort of thinking different and acting different than the person I was when I came to prison. I have to tell you, I had read your book, and a couple guys uh, read your book here at Sing Sing, and, you know, we all sort of know and hear, most, most people in state prison, as you know, especially in maximum security prison, we're all, we're all in for the sort of crimes you describe, and mm-hmm. most of which did them in the, at the time you described, when we were younger and dopey. So when we hear the criminal justice reform you know, sort of mass incarceration movement. We're always hearing it, like, through the, the politicians on the pulpit talking about you know, nonviolent crime and how we need to address it through that. And we kind of got here through that, right, through Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow. But with experts like yourself and James Foreman Jr. and John Faff is, is a, another expert, that, you know, we could let go every sort of nonviolent offender sort of tomorrow, or at least drug offender. Is this stat correct? And we'd still have more people in prison than any other nation, right? Well, that's exactly correct. And, you know, should people who are using or selling drugs at a low level be incarcerated in prison? No, I don't think they should. You know, we should have them either in treatment programs or under some form of community supervision. And, you know, a lot of states are already moving in that direction. But to think that that's going to solve the problem is unfortunately very misguided. And so what really needs to happen to solve the problem is, you know, politically more uh, complicated, certainly. Um, You know, if we say, you know, should we release armed robbers from prison sooner than they would otherwise be in there, that's a tough argument to make. That's why we need to have a deeper conversation. For one thing, um, getting out the stories, the humanity of people like yourself and thousands of others in prison, people who have gone through 
personal transformation people who understand who they were as a younger person, who they are today, and provide the support for them that they need in coming back home. Um, That's the image that we need to get out, both the policymakers and the public. And so, yes, it is a bigger lift and it's a more challenging one, but if we're serious about ending mass incarceration, whether it's policymakers or advocacy organizations, we have to come to grips, you know, with that policy. Uh, It's also the case then that's why we say long-term sentences are counterproductive for public safety. Uh, you know, resources in the criminal justice system are finite. So, are we spending sixty or eighty thousand dollars a year to keep a sixty-year-old incarcerated who may be incapacitated at this point? when we have 14, 15, 16-year-olds, some of whom are beginning to get into trouble, and for that group of people, we could use some of those resources and actually make a difference in their lives to give them other opportunities and deal with the issues they're working with. So we have to make some choices, and the choices that we've made recent decades have been all about incarceration and not really about public safety. I think it's important, too, to have these conversations. You and I, I mean, you're a you know, heavy-duty intellectual. You're talking in front of Congress, and, and, and now you're, here you are talking, you know, to me, you know, somebody that, that you're advocating for, right? I think the story is just so important, though, right? So I've been afforded to have this uh, sort of microphone, if you will, this, this platform. And uh, so I spoke to T.I. recently in an interview and, uh, I mean, that's a big voice, you know, so mm-hmm. he, I think, I think we need to have like people like, you know, in popular culture. I mean, he's a very smart guy, he's a rapper, but he's also, you know, so much more, but I think getting you know, these other sort of very influential voices involved are, is very important too. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and we have to tell the stories and we have to look at the humanity, uh, you know, a quick overview. How did I get involved with LIFER issues? Please, you know, 40, please. Forty years ago, when I was starting out working on prison issues, I was in Michigan at the time and ended up spending a lot of time at Jackson Prison, which at the time was described as the largest walled prison in the world. There were 5,000 guys serving time there. And I got to know a number of guys who were serving life, and they had a kind of self-help group they'd formed, the National Lifers of America, it was called. And I got to know them, and of course, you know, they were 30, 40, 50 years old, and the same story. They're in for murder, robbery, and they virtually all of them had made a significant transformation in their lives. And they wanted to get their stories out to the public, but of course, they couldn't leave. So we jointly set up a program where once a month, I would bring in a group of church or community people, and we'd spend an afternoon with the lifers. We'd have some one-on-one conversation and then a group conversation about the issues. And it's a very diverse group of people I would bring in, and afterwards we'd leave the prison, go have a cup of coffee and talk about it. And I can tell you every single person who went through it, regardless of their preconceived ideas about prison, uh, their first reaction was, well, they're really nice guys, and I really got to know them on a personal level, and, you know, it changed my mind about, you know, crime and how to think about it. And, you know, so again, if we 
talk about people by the crime they committed. He's a murderer, she's a robber. Um, you know, that only sets us back from any kind of constructive way to deal with the problems. If we talk about he's a person who's in for murder, she's a person who's in for robbery, this is who they were 20 years ago, how did they get to that point of committing this terrible act, and who are they today, and what have they done? Then we're talking about human beings, and, you know, we all have done things we're proud of and things we're ashamed of. Um, some of the people in prison have done some terrible things, but unless we begin to talk about who they are as people, I think that's the way to start to, to move that conversation along. So it's and, one of those, he, and one of those people was Ahmad Rahman, right? Yeah, he, was, he was part of that Quaker group, and then he eventually... Uh, gotten clemency from the Michigan governor. This was years ago, right, in, in the early exactly. 90s. And he gets out and he becomes a professor and, uh, at the University of Michigan. Do I, do exactly, I have, uh... exactly. So it just yeah. illustrates the potential that people have if we just create some opportunity. And, and you're right, too, whether it's through popular culture, through music, through art, through film, storytelling, uh, we're beginning to see much more of that take place now. Uh, you know, films that are out like Just Mercy telling the story of Brian Stevenson and some of his clients unjustly convicted and the like. Sure. Um, those kinds of stories, I think, also help to humanize, help to tell the story behind the headlines of, of the crime and of the, uh, of the sentencing and get that down to <clears throat> what are the realities in the day-to-day -day experience there. Yeah. About the other side, uh, Mr. Marrow, like the uh, so you're trying to propose this 20-year cap. You're trying to get you know hope, you know hopefully uh, one of these new presidential candidates. I don't I don't hear them talking about uh, much violent crime and but uh, just I mean say it gets momentum and I know you're trying to get that. But what do you but what do you say like to these 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 fantastic crimes that happen like here in New York? Uh, couple of weeks ago, a guy that you know, he had served time uh, for a violent offense, he got out and he ran into a priest and started shooting. And it's just like, so you have these sort of anomaly narratives mm -hmm. and then they're sort and, and this is how we like, how do, like, how do, how do we sort of, uh, it's hard to, to tell an outraged public that this incident is an anomaly mm -hmm. actually. And, well, so, like, what do we do, even though crime is down substantially, particularly violent crime? I tell you, uh, my peers and I saw that, and a lot of the guys knew the guy, and he got, and, and he's having, you know, actually, I knew guys who knew him personally, and he's having, he was actually having, uh, he had just lost his son. A lot of people didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, you know, doesn't sort of make the excuse to do what he did, obviously, but he goes and does this sort of, you know, horrible thing and uh you know we we on the one hand us in prison we're like oh well there goes uh advocacy mm -hmm. for the violent offenders and then on right. the other end there there is there's some humanity it feels like you know that must have been awful for uh the officer's family to mm -hmm. you know to hear that uh that their that their you know that their husband or their father uh you know was sort of out of the blue assaulted you know we we do have mm -hmm. feelings and we do think about you know it's twofold. But yeah. you, as a professional, what, how do you how do you sort of respond to that? 
Yeah. Well, you know, for a start, you know, you pointed out before, you know, you, uh, policies in the U.S. are far more extreme than other nations. If we were having this conversation in Western Europe today, and I suggested we set a maximum of 20 years in prison, except in unusual mm-hmm. cases, uh, it wouldn't be a provocative statement, because in many countries, either in law or in practice, it's very unusual to get more than 20 years in prison. And that's primarily based on this aging out of crime phenomenon that you know very few people are still dangerous to the public after that period of time you know i think how do they how do they get it and we don't get it like how do they get it and we don't what's the difference we're we're pretty bright over here what's what's (laughs) right it's not good and bright uh it's you know it's bigger questions than just criminal justice it's it's inequality, it's social structure and the like. Uh, you know, there's a much greater social welfare orientation in most of Western Europe, you know, greater acknowledgement that uh, we need to take care of everyone in the society and provide adequate medical care, medical care and education and the like. And not that there isn't stratification and racism in those countries, right. but the scale of inequality is so much greater here than it is in other developed nations, and along with that comes a very punitive approach, too. Um, you know, and when a terrible crime happens, of course, you know, we need to uh, do whatever we can to support the family of the person who's been killed or victimized, uh, and we need to uh, see what we can do to help them move on and heal from that. Um, but in terms of sentencing, you know, the challenge is when the day we sentence somebody for a serious crime, there's no one in the courtroom, judge, prosecutor, defense attorney, or anyone else, who knows what that person's going to be like in 10 or 20 right. years. Um, so we're sending the that, person yeah. that day, um, but that's why we need to take a look after a reasonable period of time, whether it's 10, 15, 20 years, say, okay, now we need to know who is this person today. Um, right. And, you know, we see that problem with parole boards all the time, right? I mean, those common reason people get turned down for parole for serious crime is the severity of their crime. Well, you know, the judge already sent you to prison for a long time because of the severity of the crime. So we don't need to relitigate that. We need to say what's happened since you came to prison, who are you today, what are your prospects, you know, that's that's the appropriate set of questions to be looking at. In the book, in the, in the book to jump in, you, you propose uh, what's called a 15-year second look. You know, I mean, the only, t- the only time you get a second look currently in most states and even the federal government is clemency. But mm-hmm. that is, like, so politicized. I think we, I mean, we saw that with the Super Bowl commercial. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I applaud Alice, you know, John, we're going to have her on the show, but... Is the second look, can it be different than getting the whole package of the 20-year cap? Because I love the idea of a second look and it going before a judicial panel, you know, taking it out of the, the executive branch, out of the governor's, you know, hands. What do you think of that? Is it a whole package, the legislation that you're sort of proposing, or is, can 15 years second look be, you know, you know separate from the 20-year cap? So what, what, mm-hmm. what do you think? 
Yeah. Well, I think we need a long-term vision of what would be a better structure. And I think the 20-year cap uh, is what that vision should be. And I think that's starting to resonate with a lot of people now, too. But we also recognize that change is generally incremental. So we have to begin to put in steps along the way that get us to that goal that are practical, that can be politically feasible to help to to move us along. Um, you know, part of the need for second look policy after some years in prison is that even people in prison with the possibility of parole, in so many cases that's become more difficult than it was, say, several decades ago. Either you have to wait longer for your first hearing, you get a longer setback after parole, the parole grant rate may go down, you know, all kinds of things like that, and we see this all around the country. So we do want to be putting in place a mechanism that says, you know, after a certain number of years with a reasonable record in prison, you know, you go before a judge to consider whether you can't be released. There's no guarantee, uh, just as no right. guarantee in parole, but at least to make the argument, at least to get the issues out there. So I think... Uh, we're encouraged that there is growing interest. Uh, last year, 16 states had some type of legislation for second look provision introduced in their legislatures, and some of them were able to have hearings held in the legislature, uh, in Congress. Uh, Senator Cory Booker in the Senate has been the lead on second look legislation under his provision. Um, if, after 10 years in federal prison, you would have the right to ask for a second look hearing too. Uh, so we're starting to see greater discussion about policies like this. There's still a long way to go, but I think this is one direction that has promise in the coming years now. Yeah, I mean, we're in a generation of much longer sentences, and I mean, I have to tell you, as somebody that was in, that's been in, that's in prison, there's so many years, at least initially in my bed, that you, you live in a state of rationalization. And I remember uh, when you were talking to those lifers in, in Michigan at the end of your book, I just read it, read it again last night, but, you know, I remember them talking about that, like sort of coming, you know, they created this group to come to terms with remorse, and, you know, you, you're, kind of, you're kind of on your own with that stuff in here. Um, you know, I've thankfully, uh, well, I mean, for, for, you know, sort of my colleagues and, and, uh, an individual that came in, like you came in through Quaker's group, uh, he started to create a writing workshop, Doran Larson, and, uh, he kind of taught me and a handful of others how to write in, uh, in Attica. And I, and I, you know, that's how I started this career. That's how I was able to string some sentences together, uh, and, uh, you know, express, you know, some coherent thoughts. But, uh, you know, if it, were, if it weren't for him, you know, and, and, you know, people like yourself, you know, I, I, you know I'd just be, uh, you know, sort of put a loss, you know, because there aren't many opportunities, mm -hmm. you know, for that. So reflecting on how much time, you know, like I have in and sometimes the sort of, uh, you know, accomplishments that, that I've been able to, you know, achieve, you know, there's, there's a point where I lose, I don't really have a relationship where there's, there, there's, there feels like there's, there's absolutely no validation from the administration at times. I mean, I do feel like that. I feel, you know, sometimes 
I just, and, I, and I think it's like an American thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I watched these 60 Minutes shows. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, the episode on Frontline about the Germany prisons. I've, I've read up on several. Some of my colleagues, they send me, you know, great literature on how prisons operate, you know, in Scandinavia, uh, in Germany. And it's just, there, there seems to be more of a human connectedness there. And here, I, I don't even get, like, a congratulations, like, from the administration. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like they're, they're offended by my ambition. I mean, right. is it, do you see that cultural? Uh, I mean, granted, I, I, I play a part in that. You know, I'm... I'm I'm not sort of beaming with humility like every second of the day, but um, it's hard sometimes, you know, man. Like I've been in a cell 19 years, and I think I'm doing okay for myself. But mm-hmm. I tell you, man, I need some validation once in a while. You know, I think we all yep. do in here. And is there yeah. a cultural difference? Do you see in like you know overseas where where they just treat people just better and validate them? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there is, and I think you're, you're right on target. And, you know, as you would know much better than I would, you know, first of all, the level of resources put into rehabilitation, programming, whatever we may want to call it in prison, is pretty trivial compared to the scale of the problem, both the numbers of people and the needs and all that. So, you know, for many people, and uh, I assume you're right up there, uh, you've managed to accomplish what you had despite the limitations in your environment because you have the drive and the intelligence to make it happen. So one part is, you know, what do we do as a community to make it possible for other people to achieve what you've had? Secondly, yes, we all need validation. I'm not locked behind bars, but I need people telling me I'm doing a good job at least once in a while. That's human nature. And it is true that in many other democratic nations, now there's this mini-movement of uh, corrections and court officials making visits to prison systems in Germany and the Netherlands and Norway uh, because it is a different approach. You know, the approach Good they're point. taking is, yes, you know, prison is here because you're being punished for your crime and you're being isolated from the community for a period of time. But the goal here is to prepare you to go back home better prepared to make it constructively than when you came here. And when you listen to people who've gone over, whether it's prison wardens or guards and others, um, some of the differences that they see are the day-to-day interactions. Uh, <clears throat> I heard you know, one of the visitors say, well, they saw in Norway is that, you know, every day the uh, <clears throat> the guards were required to make some number, 10 or 20 positive interactions with the people in prison. So it could be as simple as, you know, good morning, John, how are you doing today, to, you know, uh, what, what kind of programming are you in and what happened today when you're in your literature class, something like that. Right. Now, that yeah. sounds small in some ways, but again, that's part of the validation. It's part it of the matters, encouragement. Sure. You know, and as opposed to what often is a much more authoritarian approach in many American prison systems, um, that has an effect on people's behavior. And again, not just people in prison, but all of us. We need that positive validation to our work and who we are. And Mr. Mara, do you think America has a fair uh, justice system? There's a lot going on, like, for example, with uh, Roger Stone and our president just sort of, uh, you know, sort of... 
you know, uh, given his uh, advice on what the guy should get as a sentence. And, you know, there's people in the slammer here like, I wish I knew the president. I mean, that kind of thing. But then on the other end, and, and you, you have your arms crossed, and uh, people may think, you know, that's not fair. It yeah. kind of brings, uh, so what do you, like, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I have many friends and colleagues who are practitioners in the system, judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, probation officers, and and most of them, I think, are decent people trying to do a good job in day-to-day work that they do. At the same time, we also know that the amount of justice and the kind of justice you get is very much a function of race and class in this country, too. Uh, money still is critical in the kind of defense you can mount if you're charged with a crime. So if cash bail is needed, can you post cash bail? Uh, Do you have an attorney who has the time and the experience to know how to negotiate with the prosecutor? Uh, If you want to argue for an alternative to incarceration, do you have the resources uh, to provide, you know, uh, stay in a substance abuse rehabilitation center? All those kinds of things can make a difference, and uh, many of those depend uh, perhaps on the people in the courtroom, but much more so on what's going outside the courtroom, what resources you bring or not able to bring to the situation. And, you know, unless we can level the playing field, uh, then money and influence is still going to determine outcomes. And that's that's not a fair system of justice if that's how it's operating. I, I think of Brian Stevenson's words, uh, and I quote, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Exactly. The character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged. And that uh, sort of, I think, speaks to the Roger Stone situation. Yeah. You know, much of Brian's work, you know, has been on death rows around the country for decades now. And. You know, the difference between those who end up in death row and those who get a lesser sentence, uh, one, it's often race. You know, those who are charged with uh, killing a white person have four times the chance than those who kill a black person. And it's money and access. You know, the quality of your defense attorney is critical in those cases, too. And, you know, that's no way to set up a system of justice or to uh, assure people that the system, in fact, is just and fair. So, I mean, I'm obviously backing the 20-year cap. It's funny you brought up, you know, your your work, where you started your career, and you know, I was thinking of your friend Ahmad Raham. Am I? Am, am I? Uh, Rahman, got, yeah. Got, mm-hmm. yeah, he got clemency, and he he died kind of young. You know, he became mm-hmm. you know, he died at 63, right? Right, right. And I think like. You know, I uh, I got like 19 years in there, and I and I and I have a lot of I have a lot of uh, anxiety. Like I always feel like my insides are just like tightening up, and I think it has a lot to do with me just being, you know, sort of different today and trying to, you know, just pursue this career is is it can cause anxiety mm-hmm. too, and it just it's maybe come to the realization that you know, just prison just just becomes so much harder when you. When you get your mm-hmm. act together, and then right. you and you can't you have nowhere to go. Like 
I keep putting the bullets over, and there's like no way I could get like you know a month off. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's 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 that hope we were kind of you know talking about. Um, so. I mean, I just want to thank you for your work. We were talking about, you know, validation. I mean, that wasn't, wasn't much of a question. I just wanted to just express that to you and just say, you know, thank you for, you know, all your work. And uh, just in the end, we have, uh, you know, so this 2020 election, which one of the candidates, assuming you don't believe Donald Trump uh, would sort of uh, push your agenda, which candidates do you think would push the or, you know, sign off on the 20-year gap? Yeah, well, you know, on these issues, um, you know, what's encouraging about this primary season, if we look at the Democratic candidates, um, virtually every one of the candidates, including some of the ones who have dropped out, have had reasonably strong criminal justice reform platforms. And, you know, we've never seen this before uh, for either party. Um, For many years, both parties had essentially tough-on-crime platforms platforms uh, to the extent it opened up a little bit. It was always a very modest, uh, let's look at drug abuse issues and the like, too. Uh, and now, you know, many of them are calling for changes in mandatory sentencing and three strikes and you're out policies. They're calling for prisons that are much more oriented with programming, expansion of alternatives to incarceration. Um, so, and I think that's a reflection of changes in the public environment. You know, not all political sure. leaders are leaders. In many cases, they're following what they believe the public is thinking, but it goes to show that the really broad movement to challenge mass incarceration that's really heightened over the last decade. Um, You know, we see community groups across the country, civil rights organizations and others now, mass mass incarceration near the top of their agenda. And I think the political leadership is responding to that. So, so that's very encouraging. I think, you know, the challenge for us is regardless of who wins the election, if Trump wins again or one of the Democrats wins, we need to keep up the pressure. And the pressure is what got us the first step back getting through Congress. It's what got us reductions in the prison population in a number of states around the country. The more we have a public environment that demands change, the more the better response we'll get from those leaders. Well, thank you, uh, Mark Maurer, for coming on the show and talking to me, and uh, I just really appreciate your time, and uh, thank you for all your work again. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for all you do on the inside. You know, um, I think we learn as much uh, about what goes on the inside as you may from about what goes on the outside here, so we need to keep up this dialogue, and um, you know, I'm uh, so appreciative of what you've been able to accomplish there. It's just very inspirational for all of us, so thanks so much for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. It's produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Bayquet, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at JohnJLennon1, and check out his work at JohnJLennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The caller has hung up.